Hello, good day to you wherever you are. My name is Edmond Senanulochu. Welcome to Lordio, Public International Law, straight to business. Now, public international law is a set of rules, norms, and standards that are generally recognized as binding between states. Now, what it does is to establish a normative guideline and common conceptual frameworks that uh, is between two states and this goes across a broad range of domains such as war diplomacy economic relations and human rights we know that for our class we are looking at public international law but that means that there's private international law now this is the distinction private international law is that part of law which comes into operation when a court is called upon a court is called upon to determine a suite containing a foreign element that is the definition of private international law and the distinction is that private international has to do with when a court is called upon to determine a matter within the country that has a foreign element okay but public international law has to do with a set of rules that is generally binding between states now a little bit history of public international law now thereto um, states were not sovereign that means that they could not form their own alliances or sign their own treaties but the watershed moment which is the turning point came when the treaty of westphalia was signed between spain and netherlands to end a 30-year-old war in 1648. Now, under this treaty, a number of countries were recognized as sovereign. The treaty was signed in the towns of Munster and Osnabrück. Now, this treaty gave recognition to the sovereignty of particularly Sweden and Netherlands. It also activated the Peace of Osberg which was signed in 1555 that that treaty allowed sovereign sovereign states or states to recognize religious um, uniqueness of different communities so it recognized the roman catholic the lutheran and then the calvinists now so the peace of osberg was activated again in 1648 by the Treaty of Westphalia. Now, the war that this treaty ended lasted 30 years and it started in 1618 when Austrian Habsburgs decided to impose Roman Catholicism on their subjects in Bohemia. Now, the war sort of pitted nations against each other. So, nations like France, Russia, Sweden, the Danes, the Polish, the Germans were all dragged into the war. And then the peace treaty involved 194 states. Now, within this peace treaty, was the principle of non-intervention which involves the right of every sovereign state to conduct its affairs outside any 
interference from any other state so this treaty ostensibly ostensibly created public international law as the relationships that different states had with each other now there are certain fathers of public international law and some of them are francisco vittoria mari ribello Aberico Gentili and Grotius. Some others are Oppenheimer, um, Malcolm Shaw, Yaswaki, Onuma. And these are also theorists around public international law. Particularly, Oppenheimer defined public, public international law as a body of customary and conventional rules which are considered legally binding by civilized states in their relation with each other now the criticism of Oppenheimer's definition was the use of the word civilized which denoted christian states and this was before the the treaty of westphalia and so that definition can no more be used now there are certain criticisms to public international law especially by african um, and asian communities this gave birth to the third world approach to international law which is a perspective of public international law okay now that there are different perspectives but the African perspective of public international law has to do with TWIL, T-W-A-I-L, which means the third world approach to international law. Now, it is a broad dialectic opposition to international law, which perceives international law as facilitating the continuing exploitation of third world countries such as africa and asia as subordinates to the west now what toilets seek to change is the oppressive aspects of international law now twill t-w-a-r-l the third world approach to international law started after the world war ii when africa and asian countries met in 1955 in indonesia to address the material and ethical concerns of the third world which are underdeveloped countries so to speak so after this after after this conference some harvard law school graduates held a meeting to analyze the viability of creating a third world approach to international law and then this became a perspective of international law now as another aspect of international law is contributionism which is a social structure built upon the african philosophy of ubuntu okay i am because we are it is based on principles of unity within diversity and cooperation and it was envisioned by a south african named michael tellinger okay now the twill the third world the third world approach to international law has two components 
the destructive and reconstructive components. Now, the destructive perspective of the toilets exposes the exploitation or the exploitative nature of public international law. That's a destructive approach. Then the reconstructive approach is about creating an alternative normative framework that pays attention to justice and fairness in international law. Okay, so these are the two approaches that toilets use. Now, there's another African perspective which is called recognitionism. Recognitionism. And it comes from toilism and denotes a right to identification or acknowledgement. And so you can see that all these things recognitionism, recognitionism, contributionism, and then the twill are all sort of looking for some sort of identity, stopping exploitation, a fight for justice and fairness and inclusivity into international public law. Because public law, public international law, is widely seen as a couch from European domination of the world. And in fact, one professor of international law at the University of Tokyo, Professor Yasuaki Onuma, says that West-centric international law should be viewed from a trans-civilizational angle to overcome the civilizational neglect held by non-Western the non-Western world. This statement ostensibly means that the civilization as used, as opined by Oppenheimer, which denotes Christianity, should not be used in the definition for public international law. And it should go beyond that to include non-civilized and trans-civilized nations so that they do not feel neglected. And so it should rope them in. Okay. Now, Malcolm Shaw also postulated that international law developed from Western nations and things that he said to it was fraught with Western power and domination, and but has been dismantled on the altar of international internationalization of the of the law, and therefore. What it does is to affirm its universalist scope. So Malcolm Shaw thinks that before international law was fraught with Western power and domination, and but now that Western power and domination is no more um, there because it has been internationalized, because the scope of international law should be universal. That is what Malcolm Shaw thinks. Having said all of this, we move on to sources of public international law. Now, public international law, as we have posited, is built on the notion of sovereign states. And the, the, the notion of sovereignty is at the heart of international law and is actually hostile to any notion that a superpower determines international law. 
so international law typically is about looking for the state's consent okay in making uh, international law example treaties the state has to consent before the treaty is binding on them for example in the ss lotus case the rules of law binding upon states emanates from their own free will as expressed in conventions or by usages generally accepted as expressing principles of law so restrictions upon the independence of states cannot therefore be presumed this is what was said in the ss lotus case now we get the sources of public international law from the statute of the international court of justice okay now this is the 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 subsequent phenomenon to the permanent uh, the permanent court of uh, international justice which was with the league of nations but with the united nations we have the international court of justice now now article 38 of the statutes of the international court of justice opines or gives description to the sources of law that may be applied by the united nations vis-a-vis the international court of justice now it says that the sources of law are one international conventions two international custom three general principles of law four judicial decisions and the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists now article 38 1 talks about international conventions whether general or particular establishing rules expressly recognized by the contesting states now international conventions are also called treaties or covenants or statutes or charters or agreements and they are generally only binding upon the the, the states that sign onto it so even though they are subject to certain uh, certain exceptions they are only binding upon the states that subscribe to such treaties now there is no form or a form for treating uh, for creating a treaty the focus is rather on the intention to be bound okay for example in the eastern greenland case which is the only case in the poles the poles of earth that was sent to international court to an international court now in that case norway challenged denmark over the, their territorial sovereignty over certain parts of greenland since denmark only occupied a limited area now in the eastern greenland case the Danish foreign minister said at a conference that there will be no opposition to Norway's claim over Greenland. And that statement couldn't be binding upon the country because in the, of the context in which it was given. Okay, so that case, the court held for Denmark. And so Greenland became a part of Denmark jurisdiction. Now, this is only an example to... Uh, to to buttress the point that states have to consent to 
a treaty before it is binding upon them and a statement made in jest a, a gesticulation could not be conjectured to be binding upon that state okay we also have to note that the rules of treaties uh, in international law have evolved over time okay um, and we take particular reference to the passage over indian territory case now this case concerned the right of passage over indian territory and that is the passage of portugal over certain indian territories now portugal had certain territories within india called the dadra and naga Aveli in india so that were there that was their their territory and so the case was was between the passage from daman which was on the coast of the indian subcontinent into dadra and naga Aveli, which were enclaves within india but were portuguese territory and so in 1954 a band of indians occupied these two enclaves with a view of uniting them with india and then india refused to allow portuguese troops to cross its territory to restore colonial rule and the the doctrine here is that public international law has evolved over time not to allow colonialism right now the third comment about public international law is that it's an agreement between a state and an estate so it's between a state and a state and not a state and an international organization example is the anglo-iranian oil case now in that case the the uk it was between the uk and iran the uk controlled Iran's oil resources for most part of the 20th century from 1913 and this was aided by the Pahlavi Iranian government the Pahlavi led Iranian government they signed a treaty with the UK um, the it was called the Anglo-Iranian oil company okay now when Mohammed Mossadegh came to power in 1951 he sought to nationalize iranian oil and succeeded now much to the chagrin of the united kingdom that means that the uk's agreement had ostensibly been abrogated the matter was sent to the icj and iran argued that the only concession it gave to the icj was jurisdiction over matters concerning treaties between it iran and another country and not iran or and and the company because ostensibly the uk was fighting in the interest of the iranian oil company anglo-iranian oil company which was a uk company and the treaty was signed between it and iran but iran had only consented to the icj to look at matters that were between iran and another state and not iran and another company all right so the court held in favor of iran but there was an interesting turnaround uh, when the uk mi6 
together with the CIA overthrew Mossadegh and installed a new government led by Mohammed Reza Shah, who then reinstituted the agreements with the UK. But ostensibly, what this case is telling us is that treaties are between states and states. Now, so there are many ways or many regulations around treaties and this is regulated by the vienna convention on the law of treaties 1969 okay now article 2 of the vienna convention on the law of treaties says that a treaty is an international agreement concluded between states in written form and governed by international law Article 6 deals with the capacity of states to conclude treaties. Every state possesses capacity to conclude treaties. Now, this is a prelude to our next podcast on treaties. So, we will end here and continue in the next podcast on the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Thank you very much.